0: first meditation we're going to meditate a little bit on creation and sin and to help us I'm going to give you a, an illustration or an image that should help us understand a little bit of what our attitude should be before creation and before uh, before God's works before God himself little children they have uh, lots of kids they do a really beautiful uh, Spanish words are coming into my head right now I'm looking for the English words they do a really beautiful thing Sometimes. It kinda depends on the kid too, because each kid has a different personality, they express themselves in a different way. But I think almost all kids do this. And what they do, little kids, you know, there's a moment when they realize or they they see, you know, they perceive how they're loved by their father, by their mother, maybe by their brothers and sisters. And they go up to their father, their, mo- their mother, to their brothers and sisters, and they give them a hug. And they, they tell them, I love you, and they give them what? a hug, or they say something similar. One of my little brothers, his name is Nate, he would do this, and he would give you not, a hug with all the, the strength he had. And then you'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't breathe, stop. (laughs) And this is a little bit what we should do with God when we see, when we realize how he loves us, how how his love is calling to us. It's calling out to us from his works. In so many ways. And what should the children do this in a spontaneous way, right? They come up to their parents and they give them a hug and they tell them, I love you, I love you. Uh, And in us too, it should well up in our hearts. It should should surge up in our hearts this, this thanksgiving, this love towards God. Thank you. I love you, thank you, Lord, I love you. And in some way we should, mm, our hearts, our minds should em- embrace the Lord. And this is part of a, a dynamic, which is the whole Christian life. Uh, and we can sum it up in, in three steps, basically. First you have what's recognition, realizing, seeing the works of the Lord, seeing his hand in creation in your life. This is contemplation. It's contemplation. Knowing how to see. There's a a great Catholic philosopher and also theologian named Joseph Pieper. And in one of his articles, he talks about down-to-earth contemplation. The people, we need to stop running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Always busy, busy, busy. Like Father Colin would say, busy under Satan's yoke. And we need to learn how to stop. Stop! Adore. Learn how to contemplate. And we need to learn how to see, just see in creation the beauty of creation. This morning with the, with the sunrise, with the sun coming through the trees, we need to be able to just look at that and in some sense our soul has to drink in that, the beauty of, of creation. And when we do that, it revives our heart. We need to learn how to drink in, you could say, the beauty of God's creation, of his work in creation. Obviously, always in a way that fills us with a pure love, with a pure, love, mm, with a, with a pure uh, gratitude for God, not any other kind of, mm, not with a bad sensuality. So we need to learn how to see things, look at things, learn how to look at things and discover the beauty in them, the goodness in them. So the first step that we're talking about is part of the dynamic of the Christian life is to receive, receive the gift and recognize it. Like the little child realizes how much he depends upon his father and his mother. And when they realize how much they received from their father and mother, maybe it's another person in their life, or brother and sisters, that wells up in that gratitude, that love. So we have to learn to contemplate, to recognize, receive. Second step in our relationship with God is adoration. We need to learn to adore him, to glorify him. And precisely when we see his hand in in creation, when we see the beauty of creation or how he's worked in our lives, it leads us to adore him. My God, how good you've been to me. And it leads us to glorify him too. And this is, isn't something you can do right now in the silent retreat. But in, in the Psalms, it, took, it talks about how we should even um, sing out to God with loud shouts. With loud shouts! We should sing his praise. Let me see if I find the song here. Uh, (coughs) (coughs) I should have it marked some. c I should be looking in the book of the Psalms. <laughs> I'm not going to find <laughs> what I'm looking for there. Some of us it, it takes a while to wake up in the morning. You're not alone if you're one of those people Psalm 33, Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings. With loud shouts, with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Obviously, don't go around screaming in the the (laughs) retreat center. They're going to start thinking the other people are in another retreat. These crazy Catholics, you know. First, they're silent. They don't even talk in and then they're, they're walking around and yelling and this. <laughs> so, second, second step, adore him, glorify him. Third step, third step, and this is a dynamic that we should be repeating over and over again in our Christian life. Third step, participate, part. Sorry, in one word, transformation. Transformation. Contemplation, adoration, transformation. In this third step, what does it mean? Participate in his work and in his life. Participate in the work and the life of God. And that's what he calls us to do as his sons and daughters. To participate in his work and in his life. To serve like Him, and we—that it's the last step. Because first we need to know who He is. We need to see something of who He is in His creation, in His work. We need to adore and glorify Him because that is mm, what—it's that's the right response. It's the adequate response before God Himself. We who are His creatures. And third, we're able to participate in his work because we've learned something more of what his work is, of what his life is like. Then I can begin to participate in that work. Obviously, asking for his grace, receiving his grace. And obviously, an important part of this is contemplating what he did on the cross and knowing how to embrace that cross in our life how to embrace our sufferings and difficulties in this life to be able to participate in his work and in his life so those three steps contemplation, adoration or glorification and third transformation the transformation of our life which becomes more and more like his more and more like his Saint Paul or Saint Paul Saint John Paul II has a great quote. It says we are not the sum of our weaknesses and failures, but we are the sum of the Father's love for us and our real capacity to become the image of his son. We are supposed to become uh, more and more like him, more and more like him. All right, this said, uh, I'm gonna try not to speak too long, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Now I'm gonna give you some more things, more points to think about that can help your meditation. The idea of the person who gives a meditation depends, but really the idea is to give you the tools you need or material that you need to be able to, you yourself, go before the Lord and begin to think, to begin to reflect. The idea isn't that I do all the work for you. So uh, yesterday we read in the Mass from the Book of Wisdom, Chapter 13. What does it say in the Book of Wisdom, Chapter 13? For all men who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were un- unable from the good things that are seen to know Him who exists. Some of us belong in that in that group of men, at least in part of our lives, or in moments, maybe, where we don't recognize God's presence. For all men who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were, were unable from the good things that are seen to know Him who exists. Nor did they recognize the craftsmen while paying heed to his works. But they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that ruled the world. The Greeks, the first Greek philosophers, first they thought that water was the principle of everything. And then one said, no, fire is the principle of everything. Uh, And so on and so on. If through the in and the beauty of these things men assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord. How much better than these is their Lord. That's the moment when we're moved to an adoration. Who is this God who creates all these good things? How much greater is He? In fact, He's the... Mm, the limitless fount of beauty. This said, uh, we're going to talk a little bit a bit about. First, I'm going to give you some some more biblical texts that you can use in your prayer. All right, and each person can you can't read all of these, oh, you just spend time reading. But here's a few biblical texts that you can pick from for your time of prayer. Genesis 1 and 2. Obviously, those are the two uh, stories of creation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why there's two or what is that. Uh, Sirach or Ecclesiasticus 24, which is a, a short hymn of creation and Sirach chapter 42 verse 15 to the end of chapter 43 which is verse 33 that is that's a long hymn to creation and about God's wisdom in creation another text that you can read to help your meditation is psalm uh, 104 And also Psalm 115. When you're reading the the scriptures to do this meditation, you don't have to read. You can read the whole thing if that um, helps you. Or you can just read part. You only have to... The importance is that it helps you to really begin to pray. It helps you to really begin to enter into the presence of the Lord. and sometimes maybe there'll be a there'll be a phrase in the scripture as you're reading that will jump out to you where you feel like the lord touches you in some way through that through that word through that phrase you should actually stay there with that you don't need to go on and read everything all right those are a few texts that you can read to help meditate on creation meditate god's goodness in creation now we're going to talk just a little bit about creation, about the book of Genesis, the two stories of creation, and also a little bit about how how are we supposed to understand the book of Genesis? How are we supposed to understand the book of Genesis? And especially nowadays, you know, with everything that science tells us, uh, how are you supposed to understand Genesis? In fact, lots of people say, yeah, that's, you know, uh, kids stuff you know Genesis now we've got science now we know about the big bang now we know about evolution and all these things and they say ah Genesis you still read that you believe that they say those things huh? uh, yes I believe that <laughs> because I understand it with the church and I'm not a fundamentalist I don't understand it necessarily in a literal way, everything that it says, because that's not the way we're supposed to understand it. And in fact, uh, faith and science have always had a relationship. Science was actually, it was born in small ways in different cultures like the Greeks, uh, I want to say in Muslim culture too for a little bit, But it was never born and never grew to fruition, never matured like it did only from Christian culture, from medieval times, from the universities of medieval times is where science uh, was able to um, begin and grow into maturity later, even though later there's been some difficulties between, uh, or controversies, right, between men of science and men of the church but that's because it's also, these are difficult issues that we're, we're dealing with. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's actually in the you know, in the foundation any, uh, any, what's the word, any conflict between science and faith. There isn't, actually. So how are we supposed to understand Genesis? We're going to take a little bit of... Uh, things that Ratzinger says when he was Archbishop of Munich. He gave some catechesis on creation and sin and he explained there some of the keys that we should know to be able to rightly read and interpret scripture, especially on the, the issue of creation. And just before we go into what he says The Catechism of the Catholic Church Number 104 says In sacred scripture The church constantly finds her nourishment And her strength For she welcomes it Not as a human word But as what it really is The word of God In the sacred books The father who is in heaven Comes lovingly to meet his children And talks with him Now, the key is, how do I understand what the Lord wants to tell me through, uh, through Scripture? And the church helps us to, to rightly interpret, to see what the Lord truly wishes to tell us through Scripture. Mm. One of the first points that Ratzinger gave in his catechesis on creation in Munich, if I remember right, in the years... In the 1970s He said One of the criteria that we should have Is the Christological criteria What does that mean? The Christological criteria Everything We Read in the Bible And our way of understanding the Bible Needs to be All the Bible needs to be referred to Christ He's the one who illuminates All of the Bible and He's the one who teaches us to understand all the Old Testament and also the New Testament. Christ is the key. Christ is the key. And he says, Archbishop Ratzinger says, we read it, sacred scripture, and in particular the Old Testament, with him in whom everything has been completed and in whom everything takes on its authentic value and truth. Where everything takes on its authentic value and truth. That means that maybe we need to understand the Bible in a deeper way. But mm, with Christ as our principal criteria, we can do that. For this reason, we read the story of creation in the same way as the law with him. And because of him, we know the law. For example, the law of the Old Testament, there's certain precepts that we don't live as Christians. Because those were mm, precepts that pass. They no longer have validity for us. For example, mm, today we had some really nice sausages. Pretty good sausage. (laughs) Kind of of cafeteria food, but it's pretty good. We had some sausages this morning. If we were still living in the Old Testament, you weren't going to have any sausages this morning. Not pork sausages. So there's things in the Old Testament, things in the law that pass. And likewise, in our way of understanding certain parts of the scripture, like the story of creation, there's things that in his with time have passed, and we've deepened our understanding of creation and how we should understand the stories in Genesis. And as we're Ratzinger says, For this reason, we read the story of creation in the same way as the law, with him, and because of him we know what God, through the centuries, has wished to progressively impress upon the soul and in the heart of man. Christ frees us from the slavery of the letter and returns to us anew the truth of the images. And this takes us to the next point. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament and in the stories of creation, there's a... It uses a certain language, but there's a permanence. There's a permanent significance of the symbolic elements of the text. There's a permanent significance of the images. The images are transmitting a truth to us that is permanent. Even though the images may be and connected to their time, they may the images may be limited in some way, but they're in themselves, literally. But they're transmitting a truth. Why, someone? If you read the two stories of creation, there's the first story and the second story. There's two stories of creation, actually. And if you look at both of them, they don't actually meet up all the time. There's certain things that are out of order. Uh, You read the first one, and God creates everything, and then creates man at the very end. In the second story of creation, he creates man from from the dust of the earth, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and then after he creates all of the Garden of Eden and the animals it's not the two in that sense the two stories of creation don't go together problem that's a that's a, like a red flag saying don't understand me literally don't be a fundamentalist but understand the permanent significance of what these creation stories are saying what is what are some of the things that The creation stories tell us. And we're going to focus on two things. The creation stories tell us, on one hand, that all of creation is a home. All of creation is a home. And all of us who are created by God are called to be a family. And to help us understand this point uh, Ratzinger gives a few points in his cateche- catechesis. He says that in the first account of creation. The first account of creation is especially well ordered. Mm. And the biblical scholars say that it probably came from a priestly hand, uh, a priestly tradition which uh, redacted it. And Ratzinger says that ten times in the first account of creation, God speaks. In Genesis, we read, God said, God said, let there be light. God said, "Let let the earth teem with living creatures." And He says it ten times, actually. And Ratzinger goes on to explain this anticipates the Ten Commandments, or ten words that God speaks on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are the consequence of the truth and good of creation, and what it should be. The Ten Commandments are, in a certain sense, they are. Uh, by the very cre- by creation they are written into creation but man because of his sin because of his fallenness loses sight of the Ten Commandments and God had to remind man of the Ten Commandments and that the Ten Commandments reveal his original plan for man, for woman, for the family and for our sanctification the culture of the Ten Commandments is inseparable from the reality and truth of creation and serves the development of the subject and that creation as part of that creation. A A really good reflection to make about the Ten Commandments. If everybody lived the Ten Commandments, how different would the world be? No one stole, no one killed, no one committed adultery, no one lied uh, all those things how did what would the world be like it'd be a little bit like heaven the world would be a foretaste of heaven if everybody lived the Ten Commandments that's God's plan for creation that this earth become already a foretaste of heaven the problem is uh, man doesn't live the Ten Commandments but that's why Jesus Christ gives us his grace his forgiveness that's why the confession that's why father Matthew's out there confessing outside of the chapel mm. and Ratzinger goes on to explain the seven days of creation is symbolic of the creating embrace of heaven and earth of everything on the seventh day the Sabbath or the day of rest in honor of God and his alliance with Israel, God rests from creation. And the text symbolically represents the alliance of God with all of creation. In biblical language, the number four is symbolic of earth. The four, and think about the four uh, cardinal directions, right? North, south, east, west. And the number three is symbolic of the divinity. And think about when. The angels appear to Abraham, or God manifests himself to Abraham in the theophany of the three angels. And Abraham speaks to the three angels, My Lord. He calls the three angels, My Lord. Those three angels, uh, it's a theophany, and they're precisely three. Three, even in the Old Testament, is. A symbolic number of the, the divinity. And if you add four plus three, what's four plus three? It's seven. Seven days of creation. It's the, the union of heaven and earth. It's an alliance. To seven also means to, to make a covenant. There are two words that are very related so in all of creation, all of creation is an alliance of heaven with earth, of God with His creation, and that's why this this creation is designed to be a home where we relate with God, uh, like our Father, and men and women act as daughters and sons of God, and like a family, like brothers and sisters. And Ratzinger goes on to say, the Sabbath is also a day of worship and adoration. We're going to talk about that in a second. In the creation account, the seventh day shows that all of creation is a space for adoration. We should live in harmony with this creation. And all of this, Genesis proves to be a great purification of other religious beliefs, like those found in Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish is a It's a myth of the the Babylonians, and in this myth, Marduk, the god of light, kills a primeval dragon, and he cuts the dragon in two, and he creates, by cutting the dragon in two, he creates heaven and earth, and he takes blood from the dragon and creates man from the blood of the dragon. And Ratzinger goes on to explain that these kind of myths that we found in other cultures are totally different than the creation story that we find in the Bible. And that the creation story is the true enlightenment. It's the true revelation that God, that man, for example, is not, there's not something demonic, or God wasn't cre- man wasn't created with something demonic and rebellious in him, like the blood of the dragon. But that's not something original we do have original sin we are marked by original sin but god that was not god's original plan and that's why rasiger says that the story of creation is the true enlightenment it shows us that everything that god created was good and it was sin of the angels and of man which introduced moral evil into the world I'm mean, going to try not to say too many things, but mm, just one, one idea. Uh, moral evil comes into the world through sin, through the sin of the angels and through the sin of man. But what does a little bit of science, you know, what does a little bit, little bit of science tell us about creation before man was even on earth? There were dinosaurs running around, right, and eating each other before man sinned. They were eating each other. And in the evolution of creation, there's a certain, what we see is there's a certain physical evil. But the the key is to see that there's a difference between, a big difference between physical evil and moral evil. Physical evil can be part of the development of a limited creation. in, In fact, that's what it is. It's part of the development, the evolution of a limited creation, of a, of a material world. But moral evil was never designed by God for creation. And he had a special plan for man when man was finally created, when he infused the soul in man. He had a special plan for man to be immortal, actually. Even though he wasn't invulnerable, but he was immortal and a special plan of sanctity. And there's not supposed to be any moral evil, which is the true evil, which is the worst evil. That's just a little commentary to help understand, because someone could start you know, meditating, and maybe if they like science a lot, they read things about science, and say, you know, like, how is this? Like, evil came into the world because of sin, but like, you know, the dinosaurs were eating each other. What's, how do I understand that? And so the key is a difference between physical and moral evil. Alright, we're going to keep going. And we're going to try and finish with one last point. Last point. God made this creation on one hand like a home and also it was supposed to be a temple. And Scott Hahn, he explains in a book that he wrote on the priesthood that in the second story of creation the second story of creation it tells us that God placed man in the garden and he told him to to serve it or to work it and to guard it I'm going to look for the exact quote Genesis Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. To till it and keep it. Other translations say to work it and to guard it. Or to serve it and to, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And Scott, Han, Scott Hahn goes on to explain that the two words that are used here in Hebrew for till it and keep it are abodah and shamar. And these two words, which mean to work or to guard it, the only other time that they're used in the first five books of the Bible which is the, the Pentateuch, right? Or the Torah, according to the Jews. It's the law. The law is actually the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And Scott Hahn explains that the only other time these two words are used together in the first five books of the Bible is to talk about the priests in the temple. Later, in the book of Leviticus, the priests in the temple should... Work it and guard it. What is God trying to tell us? Or what is the the scriptures? What are they telling us through this? That all of creation was a temple. And man, man was God's priest. And through his holiness of life, he was supposed to give glory to God through all his life. Through his way of working and guarding this creation. But what happened? What happened? And this is another thing we should meditate today, this morning. Sin, man sinned. The Catechism explains, number 397. In the Catechism, it explains the man's first sin. It says that man, tempted by the devil, in the second story of Genesis, it uses the image of the serpent. uses an image to explain who this devil, who the tempter is. Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. Man let his trust in his creator die in his heart. That's the gravity of sin. That's the gravity of mortal sin. The trust in God dies in our heart. And man abuses his freedom and disobeys God's command. The good God, the God of love, who's put all of the beauty in creation that we were talking about earlier. Man lets his trust in his creator die in his heart, abusing his freedom. And he goes on to say, in number 398, in that sin, man preferred himself to God and by that very act scorned him. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good, constituted in a state of holiness. Man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. Man is, we are, we are creatures. We've been created by the almighty God. We've been created in his image. And with that great plan of salvation, of, of holiness. But because of man's sin, he, he leaves that plan. But thanks to, to Jesus Christ, thanks to God's mercy, who from the beginning never abandons man, we're called back. We're called back to live that holiness that God always wanted from the beginning. And that's this priesthood that Scott Han talks about uh, that was meant from the very beginning and that all creation would be like a temple. That's what we're called back to in the common priesthood of all the faithful. All the faithful are called to order the things of this world to God and that all their actions, their rest, their prayer, gives glory to God. Their very holiness gives glory to God. And the ministerial priesthood, uh, what is the, the ministerial priesthood? The, the idea is we are, in the Second Vatican Council, says that uh, you're the common priesthood and the ministerial priesthood are ordered to each other. the the ministerial priesthood is here to help you realize your common priesthood, the common priesthood of all Christians, to give glory to God through the holiness of your life. And holiness is the greatest. This is something that's really important. Holiness is the greatest dignity. That's what has the highest rank in the church. Holiness. It's not so much uh, being a priest or not, even though being a priest is a gift that God gives us to be a gift to others. But holiness, holiness itself that every Christian is called to, that is the the greatest dignity, the greatest honor. But obviously, we reach it becoming more like Christ, learning to serve, learning to humble ourselves. And this is, these are just a few I've given you a few points about creation to help you meditate now on creation, to take the the Bible, to read part of these texts that we've been talking about, and to begin to reflect, ask the Lord to, to inspire you, to guide your your prayer. Invoke the Holy Spirit. Invoke the Holy Spirit from the beginning of prayer. And if you feel like you can't pray, tell the Lord, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to pray. Help me. That's something that we have to do lots of times, actually. And if you say that prayer sincerely, sincerely, that's the beginning of prayer, actually. Lord, help me to pray. Help me to know you. Help me to understand your word. We're going to have a time of meditation now. I think we'll be here for at least 20 minutes here in the chapel. And then after that, I think that if anybody wants to go out and walk a little bit, they can go out and walk. Uh, And and I think at 11, we should all be back here. And at 11, we'll have the blessing. And afterwards, uh, we'll have a Talk by Father Matthew, but now we're going to have a time of prayer, a time of meditation, to be with the Lord, to ask Him to to enlighten us, and to help us to understand deeper these things that we've been talking about, and also like we were talking about at the beginning, to see, to, to learn to see His that He opened our eyes, that we learn to see His goodness, His beauty in creation, and that in our hearts wells up that gratitude that love, like the child who runs up to his parent or his, or his brother, grabs him around the neck, and like my little brother Nate, you can squeeze so hard you can hardly breathe, but that that kind of love and gratitude should well up in us. May the Lord help us, may our blessed mother guide our prayer, protect us, and intercede for us, amen.